2015, I realize most of you guys weren't cognizant of a whole lot going on uh, on a national level or collegiate level in 2015. But in 2015, there was a, a runner um, for the University of Oregon. His last name was, was Pepio, which is just fun to say. That's why I threw that tidbit out there for you. It doesn't really matter unless you want to look it up because you can find this clip on YouTube. But this runner, Pepio, was finishing a race that in his mind, he had sewn up. He had a lead on the guy, and he thought, man, second place is so far back, he's not going to catch me, and he's coming up to the finish line, and he starts to try to get the crowd into it. So he starts to kind of look into the stands, and he starts to gesture to the, the audience to start cheering his victory. All the while, there's a runner from the University of Washington that was closing the gap behind him. And as Pepio was celebrating what he thought was a sure thing, this runner was getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And then at the very end, about 10 feet before the finish line, Pepio looks up on the screen in the stadium and is able to see that this guy is now just behind him. Well, by that time, it was too late. Pepio couldn't kick it back into gear. And this runner from Washington, who was running hard the whole way, ended up passing Pepio and winning the race. Pretty humiliating. In fact, Pepio said, I thought I was by myself, like far in front of the second guy. I saw this guy's name was Simon. I saw Simon on the screen and I tried to pick up, but he just got me on the line. I'm not proud of myself right now, but it's a good lesson for me. I think not to do this in the future. Next time, I'll just run the whole final stretch and celebrate in the victory lap. Next time, I'll just run the whole final stretch and celebrate in the victory lap. You know, that's good advice for us as believers. Because there's this sense that we can get of a false sense of security if we're not careful, where we can think that, and you guys heard those testimonies this morning even, and last night in the tank from people that said, you know what, I, I thought I was saved. In fact, they even would have said at one point in time and used the language, I, I repented from my sins and put my faith in Jesus. And yet, what they would then go on to find out as they looked back over their lives and they were confronted really with the true gospel and the Holy Spirit really working on their life is they looked back at their life and said, man, I, I really wasn't saved at all. And so we can get into the sense of, okay, well, you know what? I'm good because I prayed a prayer. I'm good because I went to revival and everybody who goes to revival gets saved. It's a law, right? I'm good because I grew up at Compass Bible Church. I'm good because fill in the blank, whatever. If, if it's not Jesus you can kind of have this idea that I'm okay. And you can fall into this mindset that says it doesn't really matter how I finish the race, how I run the race, because heaven's coming and that's where everything's going to be great. And you can kind of want to let up, slow up and rest up here instead of pressing on and keeping the pedal to the metal until you get to what is our victory lap, which is really what that's Christ's victory lap. And that's our eternity with the Lord. And so I was thinking about this one-off message, the way it would have it, according to God's providential plan for us, us in this ministry. There's a, a week this week that I, I finished up the, the Daniel series earlier than I thought. And I was thinking to myself, well, what, what should I preach on? And I know that this idea of how can I be sure about my relationship with Jesus is something that weighs on a lot of you. I know it's something that maybe comes in waves from time to time. This idea of, man, I just am wrestling with doubt. And I'm wrestling with this concept of, can I be sure? Can I be certain that I'm in Christ? And I want you, after tonight, 
and after our time in 2 Peter chapter 1, to walk away knowing that God wants you to be sure in Christ. God wants you to have that certainty. God wants you to be able to say without a shadow of a doubt, you know what, I am in Jesus Christ and I have a confirmation about my standing with the Lord in Christ. That's what our passage is all about tonight. So grab your Bibles and open them up to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. And let's just read the, the first two verses here. It says this. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, just to, to get the picture here, Peter's writing to a bunch of people who had to flee from their homes because of persecution. He's writing to, to Christians who are under the, the threat of jail some of them under the threat of their very own lives. I mean, Nero is the emperor at this time. Nero is the guy that used to take Christians, dip them in tar, and light them on fire so that he could have candles to light his garden parties, right? So this is a bad time to be a Christian, and there's the temptation to drift, and there's the temptation to, to really not stand up and identify with Christ. And Peter's writing to this group of exiles, and he's wanting to encourage them and let them know, hey, you know what? God has given you, as he says here at the very beginning, his divine power, the divine power of God, specifically as, as we look at the context here, the divine power of Jesus Christ has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness, all things that pertain to life. What kind of life do you think Peter's talking about here? He's, he's talking about physical life? Yes, right? I mean, we get that, yes, hopefully you understand that, that your heart is beating because Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is holding all things together, which means Jesus is holding your DNA and your biology together, which is causing your heart to beat and the blood to pump through your body, right? You're breathing because Christ is holding all things together. So yes, in a very literal sense, he's given us all things that pertain to our physical lives. But more importantly, Jesus has given us everything that's necessary for eternal life. He has paved the way for us to be able to have life, not just here, but life with him. And that is through the cross. That is through his death on our behalf. That is through him taking our place on the cross and dying in our place for our sins. So that if we genuinely, truly repent from our sins and put our trust in that death, that we will be forgiven and that we will be assured of that eternal life. See, we have everything necessary for eternal life in Jesus Christ. You don't need anything but Jesus when it comes to salvation. But he says he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And those two things go hand in hand together. See, if, if you are in Christ, if you are safe, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, then it's going to follow that your life will be transformed. It's going to follow that you will be marked by and characterized by godliness. And if you're out there tonight and you're saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm really, there's, there's not godliness present in my life, then I want to say that this message is not going to make you feel too certain and confident about your standing in Jesus. But on the other hand, if you're out there tonight and you're going, yeah, I'm a believer and I see, man, there's this growth, there's this, this progression, as we heard so many times from our, our baptismal uh, candidates in, in, in the, the tanks, right? There's this growth where I am 
becoming more and more like Jesus. And yeah, it's got its ups and downs, but I see how I'm more godly than I, I was prior. That should be encouraging to you because that is from Jesus. He's given you everything necessary for life eternal and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us. The knowledge of who? Jesus, right? Life and godliness, eternal life. And then that godliness comes through the knowledge of him who called us, which is Peter's way of talking about what? It rhymes with schmasbel and starts with a G. The gospel. He's saying, look, Jesus has, has granted us the knowledge of the gospel. The best news anyone could ever hear. That though we are sinners, that though we fall short of God's standard, that though we can't clean ourselves up, that though we can't be good enough, can't be holy enough, can't be godly enough, that he was and 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he took our sin and gave us his righteousness so that we have everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us and called us to his glory and excellence. I want us to think about the knowledge of him for a second, though, because what is the, the nature of this knowledge? What's the nature of this knowledge? Because by the very fact that you guys are sitting in this room tonight, every single one of you has a knowledge of Jesus. In fact, just from the songs that we just sang and the prayers that have been prayed in the first five minutes of this sermon, you have more knowledge of Jesus than some people have in their entire lifetimes. Is that what we mean by knowledge? That we've been called and, and given everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge, through that knowledge, through just knowing the concepts, knowing the name, knowing about, knowing the doctrine, knowing the theology. Peter, is that what you're talking about here? That, that that's where our life and godliness is anchored, is in just our, our, our general knowledge? And Peter would say no, and, and I think Jesus would say no. In fact, Jesus will say no someday. Matthew chapter 7 says this. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember this, right? Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And they're chilling verses, but it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, Jesus, we were busy for you. We were doing things for you. Jesus, we, we know you, Jesus. We, we have a knowledge. Jesus, look, here's our knowledge. Look at, in fact, our knowledge produced action for you. You see, here's our, our, our spiritual resume. Jesus, look at everything that we've done in your name. We know you, Jesus. So let us into heaven. But then in verse 23, Jesus says, but I will declare to them, I never, what? I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, guys, when, when Peter says that, that we have everything necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, that knowledge is not just that you can list off a doctrinal statement. It's not just that you can sign off on something. It's not that just that you've read John Piper, right? It's not just that you know the, the verses from Awana. It's not just that you have a Bible. It's not just that you have been baptized. It's not just that, it's, it's not any of that. It comes down to, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Such that it's not just that you know him in the sense that you've got this head knowledge about him, but no, you are in a relationship with him where it's a two-way street. You know him, but he he also relationally, he knows you. 
This is the knowledge that saves, y'all. And as you're sitting out there and, and you've wrestled with, man, I, I just, I want to know that I am in Christ. It, it begins here with understanding that your pursuit of Jesus is just that. It's a pursuit of Jesus. It's not a pursuit of a status. It's not a pursuit of a religion. It's not a pursuit of a standing. It's not a pursuit of a title. It's not a pursuit of, of a, a, a holiness or a godliness. It's a pursuit of a person. It's a pursuit of Jesus. Our point number one tonight is this. If you want to be sure and certain in where you are in Christ, make sure that your drive for godliness is a drive for Jesus. That your drive for godliness is a drive for Jesus. That Jesus has given you everything necessary for eternal life and for godliness that flows from that, right? But make sure that as you are growing in godliness and pursuing godliness, man, that, that you are, in, in essence, running after Christ. Saying, I, I don't, I don't want to just be done with this sin. I, I, I want Jesus. Man, I, I don't want to just be more consistent in my Bible reading. I want Jesus. I don't just want to, to be more consistent in prayer. I want Jesus. Make sure that you, you have a desire for him, guys. Jesus isn't a mascot. He's a living, breathing Savior. And we can have a living, active relationship with him. Peter goes on in, in verse 4. He says, by which, through these, his, his glory and his excellence, and, and who he is, and giving us everything necessary for life and godliness, through all of this, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's making my point here, and let me explain how. He's given us these very great promises. What promises? What are the promises that you hold on to as a Christian? My guess is a lot of them have to do with what's coming, yes? A lot of them have to do with eternity. In fact, Peter talks about promises in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9, he says this. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the, notice here's the word here, where's the promise of what? Of his coming, of whose coming? Of Jesus' is coming. People are going to say, hey, where is this Jesus that you guys talk about, that you guys love? Where's the promise of his return? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, hey, you know what? A generation comes, a generation goes, and, goes and, and where's Jesus? For they, though, deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water, through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, was flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But, verse 8, and this is where I want to focus, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. So as we go back here and we read about the fact that he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, guys, at the core of that is the return of Jesus. Him coming back for us, his coming back for our church, him coming back to be with us and take us to be with him, right? That's the end of Christianity, right? The end game of what we're doing here is to be with Jesus. Do you want that? People in the tank this morning said, you know, my concept of Christianity initially was I just didn't want to go to hell. Guys, that's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you get to be with Jesus, not just that you get out of hell. That's just gravy. It's that you get to be with Jesus. And he goes on, Peter does, and he continues to drive this home. He says, so that through these promises, through the promises of his return, and us going to be with him, you may become partakers of the divine nature. What in the world does that mean? Should say 1 John 3, 2, not John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, when Jesus appears, we will be what? What does it say? We will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That moment when we are with Jesus and we are transformed, when there's no more sin, there's no more of this brokenness, this flesh, this ungodliness that marks our lives, right? We will be with Jesus. Guys, that is where we are headed. Do you want that? Do you want that? If that doesn't interest you, then you shouldn't sit here and say, well, I, I want to be secure about my relationship with Jesus. If you don't want Jesus now, why do you think you're going to want him then? We're, we're moving towards being with Jesus, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by sinful desire. And so that first question, guys, for you to consider tonight is this. Are, are you guys pursuing godliness in order to pursue Jesus? Or is it godliness in an end? Is it godliness to impress? Let me give you an example. When you think about your time in the DBR, reading your Bibles, do you want to be consistent in your daily Bible reading in order that your leader will think you're more godly or get off your back or stop asking you the questions? Is that what drives your time in the Word? Or prayer? Do you want to pray more because you just feel like, well, well that's what Christians are supposed to do and I'm a Christian, so I... I guess I, I, just, I need to pray more because that's what I'm supposed to do as a, a, as a Christian. Or when you think about battling sin, do you want to have victory over sin in your life because you feel like you're just tired of fighting it and you're tired of feeling guilty over it, so you're just thinking to yourself, man, I just want to be done with this because I'm sick and tired of being guilty and feeling guilty and feeling shame. And that's what's driving your, your desire to, to be done with that sin. That's one way to go through the Christian life. But that's a way to go through the Christian life devoid of a relationship with Jesus. Okay, let me give you the flip side. Do you want to be in the word? Because the word we hear is, is where, what we, we encounter most intimately in our, our time with the Lord. That the word of God is the word of Jesus. And that's the most real way that we can interact with Jesus and hear from Jesus this side of eternity. It's not through a book that you should 
throw in a garbage can or a fireplace, it's called Jesus Calling. We can talk more about that offline. You hear from Jesus through the Bible. That's the only call that you need from him. Second, do you, do you want to pray more because you think, man, I want to communicate with Jesus. I want to talk with the Lord. I want to pray. I want to worship him. I want to thank him. I want to express my love for him and my dependence on him. And so that's why I want more prayer in my life. Or do you, when you think about sin, do you want to have victory over sin because the sin grieves you because you know that that sin put Jesus on the cross and you don't want it anywhere in or near your life anymore. Do you see the difference between those, those two approaches? How one is just about godliness for the sake of appearance, godliness for the sake of your own benefit, godliness for the sake of your own good, and the other is about godliness for the sake of a relationship with Jesus. Guys, you gotta pursue godliness because in pursuing godliness, you're pursuing for Jesus. If your godliness is about anything other than pursuing Jesus, it's like trying to dig a car out with a, a hockey stick, out of the snow with a hockey stick. And you're thinking, what in the world? I've had that experience. I moved to Missouri to take a job there after I graduated from seminary. And growing up in Dallas, I didn't have a snow shovel. In moving to Missouri, nobody thought, hey, we love Pastor PJ and Amanda enough to tell them they should buy a snow shovel. And once we got to Missouri, nobody said, hey, welcome to Missouri, here's a snow shovel. And then the winter hit, and it snowed, and I couldn't get my wife's car out of the driveway. And all I had was a hockey stick. And it took way longer to dig her car out of the driveway with a hockey stick than it would have had I had a snow shovel. But guys, trying to get to heaven through godliness, divorce from a relationship with Jesus is not just going to take you longer. It's impossible. It's impossible, right? Think about a, a marathon runner. Or, or somebody who trains for a marathon. Uh, somebody who trains for a marathon, trains for a marathon because why? They want to do what? They want to run a marathon, right? Nobody trains for a marathon because they're bored. Nobody trains for a marathon because they love themselves, right? You train for a marathon because you're crazy and you want to be a marathon runner. That's why you train for a marathon. Or think about going to the gym and lifting weights, right? Why do people go to a gym and, and, and want to lift weights? They want to go to a gym and lift weights in order to build what? Muscle, to be muscular. Nobody goes to a gym and lifts weights and is thinking to themselves, oh man, what in the world happened? Why am I all of a sudden muscular? I didn't want to do that. Guys, if you pursue godliness, you are going to become more like, this is a Sunday school answer. It's okay, one, two, three. G yeah. <laughs> Jesus, right? If you pursue godliness, you're going to become more like Jesus, right? So newsflash, if you don't want to be more like Jesus, there's a problem with what you're doing. You're like the marathon runner or trainer that's out there going, I, I don't want to run a marathon. In fact, I just, I'd rather sit on my couch and stuff my face with Lay's potato chips. So why are you running a marathon? I don't know. My mom and dad always brought me to the marathon places and told me I should run marathons. I don't want to build muscle because I, I, I don't want gigantic He-Man arms. I want to have the flab that hangs down and, and touches my knees instead for my arms. Why are you at the gym? I don't know. It's just my friends go to the gym, and so I thought I'd go to the gym with them, but I'm really not interested in building muscle. It's absurd, but we do that with the church. We have to pursue godliness because we love Jesus, not for any other reason. My dad gave me a love for baseball when I was growing up, and that love for baseball has grown, and it's been fueled, and it's been 
fanned into flame such that it's now my favorite sport, right? Well, God has given us, and this is what Peter's saying here, he's given us everything necessary for life and godliness in Christ, right? He's given us that seed, and now and the, the question is, are we watering that? Are we feeding it? Are we growing that and fanning the flame of our relationship with Jesus such that it's continually getting more and more and more passionate in our lives? Do you love Jesus, and is that love producing a greater godliness in your life? Okay, so what should that godliness look like? Look at verse 5. Peter says, for this very reason, because God has given you everything necessary for life and godliness in Christ, right? Because of that, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Guys, when we bemoan a lack of confidence in our standing in Christ, when we sit here and we say, man, I... Oh, I just doubt where I'm at with Christ. I wrestle with doubt. It's not, the, the, the problem is not with the Bible. Okay, the, the, the Bible, in, and we just read this passage. The Bible tells us what it looks like for us to be certain that we are in Christ, that we can actually have a, a, a spiritual checkup like you have a physical checkup with the doctor, right? And, and determine where we are and how we're doing in our relationship with Jesus. Peter's laying it out for us. And he's saying, look, if, if you want to know that you have this eternal life and this godliness, make every effort. Wow, that's, that's a hard phrase, isn't it? But he says, for this reason, make every effort. Because of what you have in Jesus, make every effort. Because what is God has given you through life and godliness, make every effort. Guys, here's the, the thing. You don't have to, to work hard to grow physically you do have to work hard to grow spiritually. Your spiritual growth involves your effort. Your salvation doesn't. Your sanctification does. Your growth in godliness involves you playing a, a part in that, and that's what Peter is saying here. But it's such good news, right, that verses 3 and 4 come before verse 5. Because the foundation of our effort is what we have received from Jesus, which is everything necessary for life and godliness. Some of y'all may be frustrated that you're not where you are, where you want to be rather spiritually. But then at the same time, you're not making any effort to grow spiritually. You're wrestling with the same sins week in, week out, night in and night out. And then you go to bed and you pray, God, I don't want to do this. I hate this and I don't want to, please take this desire for the sin away from me. And you wake up tomorrow morning expecting some weird magic wand genie thing to have happened overnight while you sleep and all of a sudden you're not going to want that sin anymore and that's just not how it works there's spiritual sweat equity that we have to put in the game and that's what peter is saying here some of you say man i, I i'm not where i want to be spiritually and i wish i was more mature spiritually and i i don't know why i'm not more mature spiritually and the reason is because you're not making an effort to grow spiritually and your lack of confidence in your relationship with God has nothing to do with a deficiency on God's part, but it's a deficiency on your part. If you are in Christ and you will run hard after Christ, you can have a security that you are there, that you are growing, that you are close, that you are drawing near, that you are in him, and that you've got this dynamic and intimate relationship with him. 
But if you are running after other things and filling your life with idols that you're chasing and idols that you love more than Jesus, guys, you should expect no guarantee, no security, no comfort to follow you when it comes to your standing with God. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. That word supplement means to come alongside it, to support it, to come alongside it and bolster it, to furnish is another way that you can think of that. To furnish your faith. Well, our drive for godliness is a drive for Jesus, and that drive for Jesus is going to begin to transform our lives if we're doing what Peter's talking about here. Right? Our lives are going to look different. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Right? You're going to look different than you used to. You're not going to be the same. Second point tonight is this. Realize that pursuing Jesus shows up in action. Realize that pursuing Jesus shows up in action, observable action, observable even more so from our point of view because we know our hearts. And so if you're out there and you say, man, I want to have confidence in my relationship with the Lord. Peter's given us this list here that we're about to walk through to start to say, okay, should I be confident in my relationship with the Lord? Do I see these things? Am I making an effort to see these things manifest in my life? so that I can then point to them and say, yeah, look, there's a confidence that I'm growing closer to the Lord. We're not trusting these things to save us, but being saved, we're trusting these things to evidence that and increase our confidence in where we are with Christ. You guys see the difference there, right? Before we get into this list, I want to make sure that you guys are not hearing me say, hey, you need to do all these things to be saved. But we also can't ignore the fact that Peter is saying we need to make an effort to pursue these things and, and see these things and find these things in our lives, right? Because if we are saved, these things should be there. In fact, if I can jump ahead real quick to the end of this list there in verses 8 and 9, he says, look, if you have these qualities, if they're yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? These, these are, are, are key things for you to be a fruitful Christian. Well, think back to Jesus in the parable of the sower, which, by the way, Peter was there to overhear, wasn't he? In fact, not just overhear. He was the target audience of Jesus. And what happens there? Jesus goes out and he sows the seed and some falls on the, the sidewalk and the birds come and, and take it right away. There's no fruit there. Some falls in the, the rocky soil and, and it, it sprouts up and you see the green stem pop up, but then the, the heat withers it and it, it dies and it's immediately gone, right? That's the person who comes to church maybe once or twice and is like, oh yeah, that's, that's interesting. And then they get distracted and they, they never want to come back again, right? But then there's some that falls in the, the soil that's got some depth to it and the, the seed starts to grow and, and, and starts to try to send out its roots and it's it's looking okay. It's looking decent for a little while there, looking like it has signs of life. But then the, the thorns and the, the weeds creep in and begin to overcrowd that seed and, and choke its life out. And that, that seed withers and dies just like the, the two that came before it. But then there's the seed, what, that falls on the good soil. And that good soil, you remember the defining characteristic of that, what really made it difference, uh, made a difference there aside from its endurance? What was the, the measurable that it had? It bore what? Fruit. And Peter's saying, look, if you want to be a fruitful Christian, which I would argue is the only kind of Christian, but if you want to be fruitful in your relationship with the Lord, these things need to be in your life and they need to be multiplying. They need to be growing. And then he contrasts that in verse nine with a warning. He says, but look, whoever lacks these qualities, these qualities that we're about to walk through, whoever lacks them 
is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I don't think Peter's saying that he's fallen away from his salvation. I think this is a guy that, that's not really grasping what it means that, that Jesus died for the forgiveness of his sins, right? That this is the, the weed-choked-out seed. That the life looks like it's there initially, but then it, it fades and it, 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 it end, ends up dying. And Peter's saying that this guy, he's so nearsighted that he's blind. How is he blind? Well, he's saying, I'm in Christ, but there's zero evidence of it in his life. And you are not saved by your evidence, but your salvation will evidence itself. Right? That's the consistent testimony of Scripture. And it's another passage that we're looking at tonight that says the same thing. So supplement it with what? Well, number one, faith. Okay, duh, right? This is the basics. This is foundational, but it's imperative. If you don't have faith, you don't have what? Jesus, right? And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us that that faith comes by what? By grace alone, yes? And it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So we have to have faith. That's part of the equation when it says that Jesus has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. The, the imperative foundation of that is our faith, our faith in Jesus, that saving faith. But then he says we need to supplement our faith with virtue. Virtue, that's a, an old-fashioned sounding word, isn't it? But I want you to think about Daniel with this. I want you to think about Daniel from Daniel chapter 6. You guys remember the, the worst enemies of Daniel? Those 120 satraps that went and tried to find something against him? And what were they able to find in Daniel's life? Nothing. Daniel was a virtuous man. That's what we're talking about with virtue here. That you should be a person, a man, or a woman of integrity. Philippians 4, 8, the Apostle Paul says that we need to be men and women who think about the things that are true, that are honorable, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, that, is, that are, are commendable, that are excellent, that are worthy of praise. Those are the things that need to, to be filling our minds and marking our lives. That's what it means or looks like to supplement our faith with virtue. Not just virtue, though, but also what? Knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge of God and, and just, I think in general, just knowledge of God's creation. Guys, don't be afraid to bring Jesus into the classroom. Don't be afraid to, to bring Jesus into your papers, bring Jesus into your projects. God's not intimidated by your college professor. The, the brain that your college professor uses to blaspheme God by mocking him openly, God created right? So, so don't shy away like somehow Christianity needs to apologize in the face of, of knowledge. That's, that's backwards. Paul's saying here, rather Peter is saying here, look, we need to supplement, supplement our faith with, with virtue and virtue with, with knowledge. And I think it's, yes, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of scripture that is fundamental and foundational, but also just knowledge in general. Don't be lazy in that regard. And don't think that all of a sudden you're going to turn over a rock in a pursuit of knowledge that's going to undermine your entire faith. There have been plenty of atheists that have long tried to find the rock that's hiding the secret to undermine Christianity. And you know what they've never been able to do? Find that rock. You know what they'll never be able to do? Find that rock, because it doesn't exist. And knowledge with self-control. Self-control is huge in this, y'all. Huge in our security in Christ. For some of you, the reason why you don't have much confidence in where you stand with Jesus is because you don't have much self-control in your life. And sin is, is using you as a welcome mat. It's walking all over you. 
the Apostle Paul knew the importance of self-control. He said, look, I discipline my body, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I discipline my body, and the ESV soft-pedaled this, and it makes me mad. They said, I keep it under control. The, the older versions, the NASB, some of the others, you know what it says there? I discipline my body, and I make it my, this is not very woke, but what does Paul say? I make it my slave, right? It requires self-control to make your body your slave. Self-control is this, y'all. It's learning to say no to you. And sometimes you are the hardest person to say no to. It's learning to say no to you. It's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nobody? A couple? Noah, thank you. I appreciate that. Saw you bobbing. Yeah, self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It should be there in our lives because if the Spirit dwells within us, he's going to be producing that in our lives, Yes? Timothy says, or Paul says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 7. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's part of what defines us as a believer, power, love, and self-control. Again, hugely key, because Peter's gonna say this in 2 Peter 2, 19. He says, look, they, they promised them freedom. He's talking about the false teachers. He said, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Y'all, some of you are enslaved in here to your pride, to your sexual sins, to your lying, to your deceit, to, to sinful relationships. Because you don't have the self-control that you need to be able to tell yourself and tell your flesh no. Paul puts it rather bluntly in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. He says this. He says, their end is destruction because why? Their God is their belly. It's such vivid imagery there. Their God is their appetite. Whatever they want, that's what they're worshiping. Okay, stomach appetite, fleshly appetite. What, what do you guys want? And let me go get it for you. You guys need to be able to say no to the self. Self-control. Next up is steadfastness. Steadfastness. Another older word, right, that we don't probably talk about too much anymore. Steadfastness, though, is it's patience and endurance. It's the ability to bear up. It's the word you hear Pastor Mike talk about a lot, hupomene, right, to bear up under, to hold up and to hold out. And, and this is huge for us when it comes to our eternal security, because if we are in Christ, we will endure, yes? But the writer of Hebrews wants us to be mindful of this, and he goes to the well on this idea of holding fast so many times in the epistle that he writes. He says this in Hebrews 3, 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, Christians, if indeed we hold fast, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We need to hold fast, the writer of Hebrews says there. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us what? Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us endure, let us persevere, let us hupomene, let us hold fast to our confession. Hebrews 4.14, Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Christian, hold fast to that hope. When you have opposition come up, when you have things that, that you feel like, man, that is hard and, and, and cause you to panic or feel anxiety, hold fast to Jesus. It's a, a marker of our relationship with him. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And over and over again in, in Revelation 
chapter 2 and 3, to the seven churches that Jesus writes to, at the end, Jesus says this phrase, to the one who conquers, 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 to the one who, what? Conquers. The one who conquers is the one that's going to be with him in eternity. You think, man, Pastor PJ, but what if I don't hold fast? Well, let me flip back to Peter's first letter because I want to encourage you this way. Peter says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. If Peter had stopped right there, we would have been like, that's sweet, but what if I don't hold fast, Peter? By the way, what's the mechanism that holds us fast? What, it's the first one in this list that we talked about. What's the mechanism that holds us fast to the Lord? Faith. Faith. Faith, right? Just faith. That's all I'm looking for. Faith, okay? Faith holds us fast. So you think, well, what if I just not have faith? I have faith tonight, but what if tomorrow, Pastor Peter, what if tomorrow I wake up and don't have faith? Have you guys ever wondered that? Like, man, what if I go to college and I lose my faith? What if somebody has an argument that I can't answer and I lose my faith? Pastor PJ, what if, what then? Will I not be holding fast anymore? This is awesome, what Peter's about to say, okay? Yeah, you've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith? By whose power are you being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed to you in the last time? Whose power is keeping your faith? What does Peter say? What does God say? What does the Bible say? What is it? It says who? By God's power. Your faith is being kept by God's power. Do you get that? Like, that's awesome. Christian, you should feel confident that you're going to remain, that you're going to hold fast, that you're not going to fall away. Why? Because you're not keeping yourself. God's keeping you. But if you are in Christ, it's a mark that you will hold fast. And so that's, again, what we're talking about here. These are evidences that you should see in your life if you are in Christ. And, and holding fast is one of those. But you don't have to worry that your grip is going to slip because it's not your grip. It's his grip, and his grip won't slip. He's got you. Man, so encouraging to 1 Peter 5. I remember reading that for the first time recently, not a couple of years ago, whatever, and, and coming across that. I read it so many times. I was like, whoa, wait a minute, what? By God's power, you're being guarded through faith. So steadfastness. And steadfastness, we're supposed to supplement with godliness, right? Okay, now we're not talking about a state. It's not that you are in this state of being godly. Oh, I'm a godly person. No, it's your character that we're talking about. And this goes back to what we were talking about in the first point, that Eternal life, if you have eternal life, it will transform your temporal life. It will transform your, your here life, that your life will become more godly. So he talks about godliness. This shouldn't be new to us, right? Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Christian, are you training yourself in pursuing godliness the way that you would train at the gym? Are you running after godliness? Again, remember point one, why? Why are we chasing godliness? Because we're pursuing who? Jesus, right? First Timothy 6.11, Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. 
Okay, Paul, I'm running from those things. What do you want me to run to? I want you to pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, he's talking about the impending end of everything when everything will be burned up in judgment by the Lord. And he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people should we be in lives of holiness and godliness? So we're talking about a character that is a godly character. Christian, you should look at your life and see, do I see godliness in my life? And if you're wondering, okay, so what does that godliness look like? Well, I think you know what it doesn't look like, yes? And so if you've seen a lot in there that you would go, okay, I know that this, I don't know exactly what everything is included in godliness, but I know what this is is not godly. It's about setting yourself to say, I need to get rid of that, right? I need to get that out of my life. But I want to encourage you that this is possible, not because of your own will and your own work and your own self-willed determination, but it's possible because, to go back to the beginning, you've received everything necessary for life and godliness from Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was what? Crucified. Our old self was crucified. Do you believe that? Y'all, do you believe that tonight? That your old self is dead? And that, that Paul says that the body of sin might be brought to nothing? It, it, it means to be rendered powerless? Do you believe that your old self, that your body of sin, that your flesh is truly is powerless over you, that you can tell your flesh no, that you can be self-controlled. Do you believe that tonight? And you say, man, that's hard. And I would say, yes, it is hard. That's why Paul says, look, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Look, this is the rest of your life, Christian. I hate to break that to you, but it's, you're gonna be, if, if you're doing it right, man, by the time that you're a wrinkled, old, like dying saint, you're gonna be just, wiped and beaten down and exhausted. You know why? Because your life is lived doing this daily going, man, I got to fight sin. But you can because of Jesus. You can fight that sin. Whatever it is that's been owning you, Christian, you can fight it. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In fact, that whole thing, he says, so therefore do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to the Lord as instruments of righteousness, right? And, and it's, it's now that you're in Christ, you're, you can do that. You can tell yourself, no, I'm not gonna drink anymore. No, I'm not gonna go back and take those drugs anymore. No, I'm not gonna have sex with that person. No, I'm not gonna open up my computer and look at those things anymore. You have the power to be able to say no because of Jesus, and so Christians, make every effort to supplement your faith with godliness, with godliness. And let me tell you, if you're out there and you're going, man, I'm looking at my life and I just don't see my life characterized by godliness, I want you and God would want you to feel uncomfortable about that. You heard the testimonies in the tank if you were here with us. If not, go back and watch them. So many saying, look, I, I, I was deceiving myself into thinking that I was fine. But then when I really looked at my life and I saw that I didn't have any godliness in my life, I pushed back and I said, whoa, well, this is not right. There's either something wrong with the gospel or there's something wrong with me. And we know there's not something wrong with the gospel. There's something wrong with us. And so some of you guys may need to still get right with the Lord because you have been self-deceived and you would look at your life and say, man, I'm not supplementing my life with godliness in any way, shape, or form. But the final one, 
And this one's maybe my favorite right now. And that is brotherly affection and love. I'm combining the last two. So godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Paul in Romans 12.10 says, love one another with a brotherly affection. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue. Man, let it continue. Let it keep going on and on and on. And then those of you guys who are at the retreat, I think this was preached on. In fact, Nathan, did you preach on 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 and following? Pastor John did. Well, hopefully we agree. I think we probably will. But John says this. He says, look, notice the language. Notice what he's saying here, y'all. Pay attention here. Talk about how can I know for sure that I'm in Christ? Listen, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is just a little bit slow with, he just has a different view of the gospel. He just, you know, some people are hard to love. John, come on, dude, cut us some slack. No, if anyone says, I I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So y'all, as you look at your lives, do you love one another? And I don't just mean that you will go hang out with different people and you don't have a click. Okay, I, I can go into whatever. I can, I can go into the, the, your college campus and meet with a social club on campus and talk about that clicks are bad and every single atheist in that room is going to go, yeah, I would agree with that. Clicks are bad. We should not like clicks. We should hang out with, with other people. That's not where the bar is for the Lord. You know what loving one another looks like in here? What does the Bible say? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Which, by the way, what was the law of Christ? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, how? As I have loved you. Paul says in Galatians 6, that means we bear one another's burdens. How does that look like? I care about your holiness. I care about your godliness. Look, guys, if accountability is a burden for you, you don't love your brothers or sisters in Christ. Can I just say that again? If when it comes time for accountability in small groups, if that's the time that you just, oh man, really, do we have to do this again? You don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Being nice to somebody and, being, and letting them sit at your table, that's the world's standards. God's standard is so much higher than that. So love one another, guys. Care about each other. And in small group time, if, if you're saying, hey, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold you accountable this week, and then you drop that, and you don't hold them accountable that week, your words are, are, are empty and meaningless and vain. And all of you that you succeeded in, in doing is, is impressing your small group leader, maybe, although they probably know the, the reality. Do you love one another? Man, that's an evidence. That, that should, 
give you a sense of confidence in, in the Lord. And if you don't, if you're looking at your life going, man, I, I, I don't really love my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter would say, then I don't think you need to have much confidence in your standing in the Lord. And John would say, I don't think you should have much confidence in your standing in the Lord. And, and God would say, I don't think you should have much standing confidence in your standing with me. So as we go through that list, y'all, that, that we just walked through, if your response to all that is, okay, that's, that, okay, but, but how much of those things do I need in my life so that then I can have this confidence and be good to go? Guys, if that's where your mind is right now, then you've missed the point. Because remember, what are all these things meant to do in us? It's, it's meant to make us more godly, which is meant to make us more like Jesus, who is the one that supposedly we all love. So if your mindset is, okay, but where's the, where's the like, how much, what's the minimum that I need to do with this supplementing so that then I can just be okay and know that I'm going to heaven and not worry about things? What's the minimum? Then you, you've missed it. And you're, you, again, you're not loving Jesus, right? Instead, we need to be saying, man, if this stuff is going to make me more godly and make me love Jesus more and draw me closer to Jesus, how much more can I get in my life? And that's why he says, look, if these qualities are yours and increasing, then you can have confidence in where you are. Y'all, the Christian life is progressive, isn't it? Nobody is saved and then on, on a vertical skyrocket straight up to Christ-likeness, are they? We are all on this path, and this path is a progressive march towards Jesus, although on that march, you're going to have your ups and downs, aren't you? And yet at the same time, the trajectory is clear. It should be clear. It should be clear to you. It should be clear to your closest friends. It should be cl clear to your, your small group leader. Those things should be clear, right? And Peter's saying, look, if, if you see that progression, you should have a confidence in where you stand in Christ. Realize that pursuing Jesus shows up in action. One more point, and it's faster tonight. It's this, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. There it is, right there. I told you, God wants you to be certain about where you stand. God wants you to know for sure that you are saved. And Peter has just said the same thing. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, Peter, how can I confirm my calling and election? If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Fall, what does that mean? I'll never sin? Well, no, that, that wouldn't be it, right? Because none of us are arguing that if you set yourself to it, you can be sinless. Not this side of eternity. But you will never fall, Peter's saying, you'll never fall away. You'll never let up, slow up, give up, right? Like that runner approaching the finish line. You'll keep going. In verse 5, Peter said, make every effort. In verse 10, he uses the same concept, be all the more diligent to confirm. You know, we need sweat equity in this. You cannot work for your salvation, but Christian, you can work for your security. You cannot earn salvation, but you can earn a greater confidence in where you stand in the Lord. That confidence is a blessing that God gives us in response to the life of obedience that we live before him. And Peter wants us to have that. I want you to have that. And it's a daily thing, y'all. Point number three tonight is this. Daily devote yourself to loving Jesus most. Daily devote yourself to loving Jesus most. When he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. This is not like in Catholic churches, right? You go through confirmation, which is supposed to confirm your baptism that, hey, look at that. And now it worked. It doesn't. It doesn't work. Baptizing babies doesn't work. I whispered that part so that it's not loud on the, the video. Baptizing babies doesn't work, okay? So all that to say, confirmation in the Catholic church is, is pointless, it's a lot of pomp and circumstance in a really long ceremony for no good reason. 
But this is a confirmation we should be after. But here's the deal. It's not a ceremony. And it's really not a one-time event either. This is a daily opportunity that you have to confirm your calling and election before the Lord. How? By practicing these qualities. So daily devoting yourself to believing and choosing that Jesus is best. And I think, yeah, there's an objective assurance that we can have. We can say, I know the gospel. I believe the gospel. I've repented for my sins. I put my trust in Jesus. I examine my life and I see the godliness. I see these things. That's the objective sense of assurance that we can have. But there's also a subjective sense of assurance that comes from the spirit within us bearing witness that we are children of God, right? And that's, I think, a little bit of what Peter's talking about here, that we can have that subjective assurance, guys. Because here's the thing. If, if you don't pursue these things, sin is waiting and sin will always rob you of your confidence. The enemy is more than happy to rob you of your confidence in your relationship with the Lord. And if you roll out the welcome mat for sin in your life day in and day out, then it's really no surprise that you don't have a confidence in your standing in Christ. Paul in Romans 5 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we say amen to that, right? That means I can never outsin the grace of God. It's good news, yes? It's, it, that means if I sin tomorrow and, and after that sin tomorrow, it's not like God's going to be like, oh, dude, Pastor PJ, you hit your limit, so you're done. See you later. That's what Paul's saying here. That's good news that you cannot exhaust the grace of God. But then Paul finishes, follows that up, and he says this, what should we say then? Should we continue though in sin just because that grace abounds? And what does Paul say? Uh-uh, right? He says, no, may it never be. No, don't do that. Stop that. That's dumb. That's stupid. Don't do that. And if that's our mindset, y'all, if you continually fall back on, well, God's grace and he'll forgive me for what I'm about to do or what I've done or what I'm doing, Look, if you're in Christ, yes, he will forgive you. But it's a danger, like I talked about at the very beginning, that you may be self-deceived into thinking that you're fine. And even if you are saved, you are gonna be living a miserable existence, always worrying, always fearing that you're not really saved. Because look, if, if sin rules your life, you will have no confidence before the Lord. But if godly rule, godliness rules your life, you will have an abundant confidence before the Lord. And here's the reason why, guys you know that you, your, your intimacy with the Lord fluctuates, right? It's like any other relationship that you have, that there are times where you are gonna feel and be closer, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, right? He will never cast you out if you're a believer, but there's an ability to be closer or further away from him relationally. And here's the thing, God and sin are incompatible. Those things don't coexist together. And so if you have sin residing in your life, then the intimacy that you may say you want with Jesus is never going to happen because Jesus and sin won't coexist together. Can't, won't, right? If you want a nearness to the Lord, students, you need a separation from sin. If you want a nearness to the Lord, you have to hate what he hates and love what he loves. You have to set yourself to, to fill your life with things that stir your affections for Jesus. And as I've leaned hard on effort, I want to bring us now back full circle one more time just to remind you of the beginning of this passage where our confidence ultimately resides, and that is the fact that in Jesus we have been given what? Everything necessary for life and godliness. Everything necessary for life and godliness. That you have all of these things, students. There's, there's, there's nothing that's, that's beyond your grasp that you need for these things. You want to be secure in Christ and, and confident in your relationship? Peter would say, awesome, you can. What does that look like? It looks like loving Jesus most. 
pursuing him with all that you are and enjoying that confidence, security in him. Why did I tell that illustration at the beginning of the, the runner? Because of this, guys, maybe we could shift the focus away from that runner who lost to the runner who won and ask, why did that guy win? What did he do? He kept running. He kept running like he was going to win the race. He kept running like the race wasn't done. He kept running going, okay, yeah, look. He even saw his, his opponent celebrating and trying to get the crowd to celebrate. And he didn't think to himself, oh, man, it's over. That guy's celebrating. He didn't even pay attention to him. He kept his eyes straight ahead, his focus on what he needed to do, and he kept pushing and kept running and kept going. And so he was the one that had the confidence. He was the one that had the security that he was going to do the, the, the thing right, right? Because he set himself towards what was in front of him and what he was supposed to do. Christian, that's a lot of, of what it looks like for us to enjoy confidence in our standing with Christ. So say, okay, Jesus, what do you want my life to look like? Well, Peter says here, this is what Jesus wants your life to look like. Okay. I want to see more of that in my life and less of things that rob me of those things. And that's what I'm going to set myself to every single day. Can you be sure that you're going to heaven? Yes. Can you be confident daily that you are going to spend eternity with Christ? Yes. Does, that, does your eternity have anything to do with your work? No. But your confidence does. Your confidence does. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Christ's finished work on our behalf that we don't add to that or subtract to that or make that any more valuable than it already is. But Lord, we can certainly rob ourselves of a confidence in our relationship with you if we don't pursue you the way that you've called us to pursue you, if we entertain sin and ungodliness in our life. God, we can't expect that we're going to feel close to you. We can't expect that we're going to feel confident about our standing with you, God. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd increase these things, this list that Peter talked about here, not so that we can have a self-righteousness or boast in anything about ourselves, Lord, but simply so that we can be confident in, in you and in your work and in your goodness and your grace and your mercy in our lives, Lord, and rest in that. Father, I, I, I pray that these small groups would just lead to good discussions and transparent discussions. I pray that we would be a group that does really truly love one another, even as that is a marker of our relationship with you and care about each other, God, and that you would use us in a great way that way. Lord, we're grateful, thankful for another evening, another night to be together as a ministry. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.